This is the Our York Media Podcast, an audio and video production that features the good news makers of York County, Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Rebecca Hanlon. Today we're sitting down with Rin Caputo of Caputo Brothers Creamery. Based in Spring Grove, Caputo Brothers is not only making, serving, and teaching others how to stretch their own fresh mozzarella, but Rin, her husband David, and a slew of hardworking cheese lovers are on a mission to save family dairy farms. Um, and we've been chatting it up for like 20 minutes now. <laughs> so I'm sorry that everyone missed all the, the prelim of our discussion, but uh, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. I'm really you're here. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. We have often said that because we're not from central Pennsylvania. We moved here about 10 years ago uh, for good dairy. and But the central Pennsylvania, the York County, York City, all everyone has just welcomed us with open arms. And so we, we just love supporting local initiatives. And what you guys are doing for York is amazing. Oh, so we're proud to be a part you. of it. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I'd like to give people a, a brief background, although I think what you're doing today is is very exciting but i think people need to just know a little bit of context sure so um you're not a born and bred like cheesemaker no so give us kind of a brief bio of of career how you got started you and david met that sort of thing excellent so dave and i met on the jersey shore in a bar at about like you know one o'clock in the morning so what every parent hope for hopes for uh but we we really just kind of had this immediate connection so much so that uh, I wouldn't program his phone number into my phone because I was like, this is kind of too good to be true. And I remember after the first official date, as soon as I got in my car, the first thing I did was like put his name to the phone number because I was like, this is real. And Dave actually went and had drinks with his buddies after our first official date. And they said, well, how did things go with this girl from Texas? Because I was living in Texas at the time. And he said, she swept me off my feet. And so, you know, things just clicked for us. We just knew we were supposed to be together. He was this Italian-American who was selling um, pharmaceuticals at the time for a company called Pfizer and was doing really, really well at it. And, you know, thought that that was what he was supposed to be doing with his career. And I was in IT, so I had come out of college um, before the year 2000, had done a lot of work with remediating, like most people don't even remember that anymore, but there was this real big scare about Y2K. And um, I got to be part of the dot-com boom, living out in Silicon Valley. And that was super exciting and really defining. I'd always had this entrepreneurial spirit. I always say when like other girls had their Barbies, like, you know, going down the aisle with Ken, like Mm -hmm. mine were seated around a boardroom table, like talking about, you know, how the next lemonade stand could work better. (laughs) And, you know, if I wanted something, I never thought like I should beg my parents for this. I would be like, okay, what can I sell? Let's have a yard sale. Mm -hmm. Like, let me, you know, make some money and then I can go buy that. I just always had kind of that spirit, you know, I think people think it's a joke, but it's really serious. Angela Bauer on Who's the Boss was my like idol growing up. She was this advertising executive. And my first real major in college was advertising. That's what I thought I was going to do. When I figured out technology was this big thing that was happening. And as a female, there were a lot of opportunities for me because in my graduating class of five or 600, I think there were 
two or three females. Mm. So I, I kind of saw that this was a really great opportunity. And I think that kind of goes back to this entrepreneurial spirit that was always inside of me. And I saw an opportunity. I went for it. We had great success in our careers. Um, but Dave's first trip to Italy, we, we go over. You know, it was kind of like he always says, you know, was visiting the motherland, everything he'd always heard of growing up. His grandparents didn't speak English. And so when we when we got there, we got engaged there. It was a lot of excitement, but it was really it spoke to him in a way that I think completed him that he wasn't expecting. And so this career that he had that he was very happy with prior to that trip, once we got home, just felt very empty to him and it was like this isn't right anymore and you know we planned a wedding in five months and and I moved from Texas to Philadelphia and I went from being this IT consultant to working full-time for Johnson and Johnson so there was a lot of life change happening and I just kept saying wait until after the wedding wait till after the wedding and so he did the second morning of our honeymoon he woke up and said I got to get this off my chest. I know what I want to do with the rest of my life. And I was like, you know, hopefully it's be married to me because here we are. (laughs) And he said, yeah, I just I want to be a chef. I think I just want to immerse myself in the Italian world and Italian food. I want to have a connection to that. And and that's what we did. We we came home. We found this culinary school in Italy. Six months after we were married, we put everything in storage, quit our jobs moved to Italy, and both went to culinary school. Really, the intention was not for me to follow him on this journey. It was more just to be a part of what he was doing because we were newly married, and I I didn't want to be apart from him, you know. And I still don't. I still can't imagine going six months, you know, away from each other. And so we just found this culinary school in Calabria, Italy, the toe of Italy, and Um, we moved over there. It was an incredible program. We still take people back there today on our tours and it, it just outlined for us a path forward. And we weren't sure that it was going to be cheese or wine or restaurants or gelato or, or bread, but we knew it was going to be in an industry deeply related to this amazing experience that we had had Mm. about traditional Italian food and so when we got back to this country we just started you know trying to figure out where we fit into this puzzle and it was it was challenging because Italian food in Italy really doesn't exist per se there's Roman food there's Florentine food there's Venetian food there's you know Veronese food from Verona but it's not this definition of chicken parm, meatball sub, you know, fettuccine Alfredo. That's not even a thing. So we said, how do we fit into this dynamic? And, and that's where we found cheese. That's where we really said, this is something that we feel like there's a, a big hole here. And even though we have very little experience we had learned in Italy but not to the depth that we needed okay again kind of going back to that spirit of identifying an opportunity and saying this is something that really speaks to us and we know is a real problem and we feel like we can be 
a good fit. Mm-hmm. And and that's what took us to cheese. That's really what got us there. So you come back to the States after culinary school. Mm-hmm. What, what do you do? Because like, you don't have your jobs anymore. We don't. So we went to work in restaurants um, because the first thought was that that's what we'll do. We'll open a restaurant. I went to work in the front of house. Dave went to work as a chef. Really just getting repetition, getting an idea of how these run from a real world experience, not just academic like we had experienced at school. And on weekends or, you know, on Mondays and Tuesdays because we didn't have weekends, we would work on recipes. We would work on things at home that would make us feel like we were taking this knowledge from Italy and applying it. And so one of the challenges that we ran into was living in southern Italy, mozzarella or fior di latte, the cow's milk version as they call it, is a part of your daily existence, ricotta. I mean, you you have it, it's it's a staple. Um, And so we kept buying the ones that were produced here in America and they weren't right. They didn't cook the way they were supposed to. They didn't taste the way they were supposed to. And we had enough knowledge to understand that they weren't right, but not enough knowledge to know why. And so out of necessity, we started making it ourselves. And that's when people started coming to us and saying, we want to buy your cheese. And we were like, no, we're just making cheese because we want to be like chefs it. or we want to have a restaurant someday. And the more people said, but this is really good, the more we were like, mm, maybe this is a thing. And that's when we started looking for good dairy. And that's when we figured out Pennsylvania was a good place for us. So where were you at that point? We were in the Virginia Beach area of Virginia. Okay. Mm-hmm. So how did like Pennsylvania even like show up on your map then? It didn't show up on my map. It was like the top of Dave's map. Okay. Um, but... I'm a Southern girl. I was pretty much a military brat, so I had moved around a lot, but almost always in the South. I like warmer weather. I like flip-flops. I love Southern hospitality. And so for me, the Mason-Dixon line was this real, like, I'm not going over that. Yeah. Um, So if we're going to do this cheese thing, it's going to have to be in Maryland or the Eastern Shore or, you know, the foothills of Virginia, something like that. Dave just kept saying, but Pennsylvania's got good dairy, like, and so we found this house, um, through him just kind of continually pushing me, um, in Spring Grove, Pennsylvania, that looked a lot like an Italian house. I mean, it's a, it's a 200-year-old Pennsylvania Dutch stone farmhouse, but a lot of that similar look and feel you'll find anywhere in Tuscany, Mm -hmm. and so it just, when we, when we found it, we said, okay, it was old dairy farms that kind of felt like a sign. Okay. Like, maybe this is where we're supposed yeah. to be. And it had enough land that we could build an addition onto our house for my parents to move in with us. Mm-hmm. And that was, again, something that went to our Italian experience, this multi-generational living. So we had a lot of things going on at once. We're, we're having our, our children. We're wanting Our parents are retiring, so we're wanting to keep them close to us. We want to start our own business. We want to make cheese. And, and Pennsylvania just kept coming to the top. And when we found this property, we were like, this is it. This is where we're supposed to be. We had no idea at the time it was going to be 15 minutes away from our first source of dairy. Um, we just said, we'll figure it out when we get there. And 
19 miles across the Mason-Dixon line is compromised, and that's how you make a marriage work, folks. So <laughs> make note of that. Make note of that, yeah. So you, you moved to the house in, in Spring Grove. Mm-hmm. Um, are you working? We are. At that point, Dave had gone back into pharmaceutical sales, so he spent another okay. two and a half years working in pharmaceutical sales. So after we left the restaurant industry, decided we were going to have children, we needed health insurance. Um, and Responsibilities. I know, I know. And, um, and we needed to be financially secure. Right. And the, the thought of the cheese business was that um, I would get it started because that was more my skill set. Okay. Dave would stay in pharmaceutical sales while I had, you know, it was a, it was a very specific plan. It was like, we'll have the kids, I'll stay home with them, build the addition, start the business. He'll stay in pharmaceutical sales and then we'll switch. He'll take over the business. He's more the artisan. He'll take over the cheese. And I'll go back into IT where I'm very marketable and okay. I can even work from home. So it, it was a perfect plan. Until three months after we started the business, the cheese business exploded. And like our perfect little business plan of making 40 pounds of mozzarella a week and selling it at the local farmer's market went right out the window and life changed forever. So what was that switch? You started making your cheese. What made it explode? Yeah. What was that? So the curd really uh, had not been, most people know us as being the country's only producer of fermented mozzarella curds that can be, um, (laughs) curds that can be stretched. Let's try that again. Most people know us as the producers of fermented curds that can be stretched into fresh mozzarella. But the original business plan had nothing to do with mozzarella curds. Okay. Our thought was, for a long time, we were just really good home cooks before we went to culinary school. Even when we got home from culinary school, we had the chef experience. We were working in restaurants. But when we had time off, what we really loved to do was create amazing dishes at home. And our biggest challenge in that was finding good quality ingredients. Mm -hmm mozzarella being one of them well one of the challenges with fresh mozzarella is it's a cheese that's meant to be eaten the day it's made and we said okay listen most people are not going to want to make mozzarella themselves and to go through the real process not the 30 minute mozzarella but the real fermentation takes some knowledge of science Mm -hmm. and and is a little more challenging so if we make the curds and we freeze them and we just sell the curds to like people who buy Apple Valley Creamery's milk, then great. What we can do is have this little side project for people who are home cooks who are really interested in getting the curds and stretching it themselves. So it was never intended to be the primary focus of the business. We really just wanted to have a stand at a local farmer's market, maybe one or two chefs, and we would make and stretch the mozzarella a couple times a week and sell it fresh. Mm -hmm. That was the real business plan. Maybe in five years, we'd go to 60 or 80 pounds a week, you know, as the boys got older and we could handle that. But these curds, um, the folks at Murray's Cheese up in New York City heard that we had them, knew that nobody else was making a fermented curd and had a chef who was looking for it. And so three months after we started the business, they called us up on a Monday and said, can you get us a sample of these curds tomorrow? That's literally like 
you have a, a two-year-old and Harvard calls and is like, can you bring us your child tomorrow for an interview? Sure. I mean, I don't know why, but I mean, right. you would go, right? Because, yeah, who knows? <laughs> like, you know, you haven't figured even how to raise the two-year-old yet, but Harvard's interested in bringing them to your, you know, their school. So you would at least go and like figure out what's going on, sure. right? Yeah. So we went up there, we brought them the curds and for 25 minutes, they were like, mm-hmm. Great. Okay. Lots of questions. Very hard. Not giving us any like feedback. And we were like, okay, well, this was a real waste of our like three and a half hour drive up here. And But we, you know, got back in the car, which was three and a half hours home. And they called us the next day and put an order in for a hundred pounds of the frozen curds. And we were like, um, sure. And they were like, can you deliver it tomorrow? And I was like, um, Yes, having no idea if I actually had 100 pounds of curd in the building, which we had 102 pounds. Nice. We'd never sold more than one pound to anybody. So we had no boxes. We had, they asked what our distribution to New York City was. And I was like, every other week? <laughs> and they were like, excellent, good. Can we go ahead and put an order in for 250 pounds for, you know, two weeks from now? And I was like, yes, you can. And one of the biggest mistakes, actually, that I made was they were like, what is your delivery fee? And I was like, no, it is an honor for us to bring you the cheese. Like, I would never imagine charging you a delivery fee. Oh, yeah. Should backfire. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but what did I know? Like, I didn't, I didn't know. And I didn't know what, certainly what I was getting us into Thursday. So the next day, we drive up there with our 100 pounds of curd in a Home Depot box and as we're delivering this, you know, 50 pounds at a time, because it didn't occur to me that, like, that would be too heavy to carry into their store in Greenwich Village as I'm, like, you know, double parked out, you know, w with two toddlers in the car trying to figure out how to do this. And the buyer actually saw me and she was like, oh, my goodness, I'm so glad you're here. Can you go train the chef and his team tomorrow? And I was like, um, what? She was like, yeah, there's a Michelin one-star restaurant, which in the restaurant world is a big deal. That, right. that means it's a really good restaurant. And he bought all 100 pounds. We're delivering it tomorrow, and he would like you to come train his staff. You do that, right? Yep. Absolutely, we do that all the time. So, yes. And so the next day we go, and we show up, and we train the staff. And I was terrified and when I get there, they said, listen, we have a TV shoot tomorrow. Do you think you could come back and do this little like TV shoot of stretching mozzarella? And I was like, yes, we can do that. And so we stayed another day and we filmed this little TV show. It's still on YouTube. It's terrifying. It's so terrible. And but it's that was it. We were off to the races like. Within weeks, we had to figure out, like, how to produce a lot of curd in this little creamery that we had. Yeah. Throw the business plan away. No more fresh mozzarella. No more farmer's markets. Like, now we supply New York City 250 pounds, and it became more and more. And by that summer, we were in the New York Times. By the end of the year, Food & Wine Magazine. Like, it just it just snowballed on us, and we, we just had to figure it out as we went because... I didn't know how to say no. I have learned that now. Um, but it was so exciting. And, you know, here we're like training Food Network star chefs and, 
you know, it was, it was surreal. It was like living somebody else's life. And, you know, I remember at one point I had, um, a salesperson taking me to meet a very famous chef and we were riding the subway to get there. And she said to me, so how many years have you guys been doing this? And I was like, five months. And she was like, what? I was like, yes, we've been doing this for five months. And, and she was like, I mean, I can't believe it. I didn't even know that we worked with people who'd only been in business five months. And I was like, I don't know that you do. Yeah. So it was just like, it was crazy. It was really crazy. It was all good. Um, but at that point we figured out like this is going to take both of us and yeah. we're both going to oh, have yeah. to work in the business. And so Dave eventually left. Okay pharmaceutical sales and came into the business because now I'm on the road like training chefs and delivering cheese and somebody had to make all of this cheese in this little creamery that we had built to make 40 pounds a weekend. Um, so where were the boys while you were going through all of this? So it was it's it's so funny because the boys were actually we named the business for the boys. I mean people ask me all the time if I'm married to a Caputo brother and I'm like, no, but I did give birth to them. So, um, but we, we had no choice but to have them with us all of the time because they weren't in preschool. They weren't, you know, out. We, we had no coverage for them basically. Yeah. Um, cause my parents were busy being involved in the business too. So everybody had something they had to do and we just had to, you know, kind of bring them along. Like when we would go and get milk, my dad would go and pick it up and Mateo would stand at the top of the milk slide and he would push it down and yell, milk in the hole! And it would come down this milk slide and I would get it and Giovanni would be standing there and I would I would pick it up and, and put it down on the ground and he was strong enough to be able to pull two jugs out at once. Okay. And he would kind of waddle those over, he's three at the time, and hand them to Dave. And Dave would then get them, and each uh, container had to be sanitized and cleaned before we could open it and then pour the milk into our vats. And now vats are multiplying, because we went from this one vat we thought would take us five years to outgrow to, you know, four months into the business, we have four vats in the room now, so instead of being able to make 40 pounds of cheese at a time, we can now make 100 pounds of cheese at a time. And so, you know, they were, they just knew that like, oh, today's the day we make cheese, great. So these are our roles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, once we would get these 100 gallons of milk in the room and clean, then they all had to be opened and poured into the vats. And we needed to be very careful the way we were pouring them. And so Mateo's job was to stand there and say, no bubbles, because if you started getting bubbles, that meant you were being too aggressive in the way you were pouring it in. And that was, and he took that job very seriously. I mean, if my dad was helping and, you know, he was getting a little too quick, you know, Mateo would start saying, pop, pop, no bubbles, no bubbles. And so they had their roles and it didn't even occur to us how much they were really you know, taking out of the business until we started our partnership with Giant Food Stores last summer. And again, we ended up in a situation where we had a launch going on at a store in Lancaster and my parents were out of town, Dave's parents were out of town, so we, the boys had to go with us. Yeah. 
And I remember like threatening them, you know, within an inch of their life to be perfect and presentable. And then like offering like a million bribes if they made it through these, you know, this three hour demonstration. And when we got there, we said, okay, we're going to go cut all the samples. You guys just stand here by the case and just don't touch anything. Don't talk to anybody. And next thing we know, Dave and I are cutting up the samples. We look over and they've got a crowd around them. And they're, and I'm like, oh my goodness, let me go rescue them is what I'm thinking in my mind. They're now nine and 10. And I run over and they're holding court. They're explaining everything about the cheeses. And this one won a bronze medal at the World Cheese Award. And this one's a little salty, but grated and it's perfect on pasta. And so I stepped back and just listened and they had this like whole spiel and they're selling cheese like crazy they can sell cheese better than anybody and it's not like i ever sat them down and taught them here's information about the business but because they've been with it for seven years from when they were old enough to you know waddle milk jugs over they just know it yeah and it's it's really cool it's really cool um i'd love to touch on a little bit so um you kind of talked about not being able to say no mm-hmm. and and saying yes when you weren't sure you actually had like enough milk or anything sure. like that. Um, did you ever have moments? It sounded like early on that worked out. Sure. That was okay. Yep. But did you ever have moments later on where you kept saying yes and like things just exploded or like it was bad or you had to figure out how to fix it? Absolutely. You know, I always say that the reason we are as successful as we are is because we are not afraid to fail. And epic failure is even better because those are the moments that you think you cannot come back from. You know, um, you feel like there's, there's no way we will survive this. But when you do, wow. Like, you eventually get to the point where you are so confident in what you're doing that you're not afraid of what's going to happen when you say yes, but more importantly, you're not afraid to say no. Mm-hmm. Because I think so many times as entrepreneurs, we assume if we say no to something that that is us limiting our opportunities. But a lot of times you have to refine your opportunities to pick the ones that you can be most successful at. Let me give you an example. In the early years, we had so many, because we, our first chef customer in New York City was this Michelin one-star chef, and we had this really reputable cheese company out there supporting us, a a lot of the big names came running because they were like, this must be a good thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they might only order 12 pounds of cheese three times a year, but I would jump through whatever hoop they put in front of us because of who they were. Sure. And it was running us ragged Mm -hmm. or it was causing us to not work with other customers because we were so consumed with what we were doing with them. And eventually I figured out, look, I've got a customer down the street who does 300 pounds a week. It doesn't matter if they're a big name or not. That's somebody that I need to spend a lot of time with and that I need to give all of my support. And I'm comfortable saying no to someone else because I know the impact that it has on my business. And, you know, I think 
a lot of times as entrepreneurs, we run towards the shiny object because it's like exciting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what we have to do is understand the impact that that shiny object has on the business. If it's not fantastic, it doesn't matter how shiny that object is. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, it's going to be there. When you want to come back to it, when you have time for yourself, it's there. Mm -hmm. It doesn't go away. But making better decisions for what makes the most sense for our business, I'll take that any day over the shiny object. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to touch on, um, last time I heard you speak, mm -hmm. you talked about this mission to save, uh, like the family dairy farms. Sure. Um, when did that become something for you that was was evident that this was now part of your business. Not only were you making great cheese, but you were going to save these farms that were ultimately closing and going away, not going to be anymore. When did when did that start for you guys? So it started right out of the gates. We just didn't know it. Like, I remember the first conversation I had at Apple Valley Creamery with the ownership there was, you know, they said, well, what do you want to pay for milk? And I said, I want to pay a fair price. And they said, well, what is that to you? And I said, no, what is that to you? Mm -hmm. What do you need to get from us in order to support your family? Because I want this to be a partnership. If I'm going to be successful, you tell me what you need to support your family properly. And I'll just make sure that I sell my cheese at a price that supports that. Okay. And if, if it doesn't work, well, then... We'll, we'll circle back on that. And so I didn't know at that point that what I was doing was trying to make a big impact in the economics of the local dairy industry. Yeah. I just wanted to have a good partnership with someone and I wanted to pay a fair price for milk because I knew people weren't mm. paying a fair price for milk. Our biggest challenge as we grew was that no other dairy farmers really wanted to work with us because we're so far out of the conventional wisdom when it comes to how dairy economics work that they kind of looked at us like, mm, either too good to be true, there's no way they're really going to be successful paying that much for their milk, or, you know, it's too different and I don't like change. And here's the status quo, and the status quo has always gotten by. And so, you know, three years ago, I had a dairy farmer literally sit me down and say, listen, little lady, no one is ever going to sell you their milk because what you're trying to do is too different. It's too weird. And now we have, you know, lists of dairy farmers who want to work with us because the crisis has gotten so bad. So I think... You know, we always had that as our mission. We didn't, it wasn't, we didn't market it as such because I didn't know that people cared. Yeah. I just thought we're going to do what's right. We're going to make a good quality milk. We're going to work with our dairy farmers to ensure that that happens. And we're going to make a good cheese out of it. And we're going to insist that people pay us a fair price so that we can pay them a fair price. And it wasn't until November when we had this dairy farmer who for a year, and they were really ahead of their colleagues and that they they knew it wasn't getting better mm. and they started that conversation with us well before anybody else was ready to have that conversation because of that they were the first farm that we saved mm. and so you know for us 
when we really brought them on board and we saw the reaction that that had and all the farmers who then started showing up on our doorstep, I mean, that's the power of social media, right? Like we were just excited to let people know we had another dairy farm. Yeah. And so we went on Facebook and kind of told people about it. And literally within 30 minutes, the phone's ringing. We've got people, you know, standing in the creamery saying, how do I get on board here? And we were, that was really kind of an aha moment for us that we were like, oh, oh, this is a, a much bigger problem than we realized. And people are now willing to leave conventional dairy and come and do, you know, be, be a part of what we're doing here. And so, you know, and it was, again, if I go back to this partnership with Giant, another eye-opening experience as we're in these stores getting really immediate feedback from customers telling them all the things we've told them over the years, you know, we're animal welfare approved, we're non-GMO, we're pasture-based, like all of these things, people could care less. They just weren't interested in hearing that. Yeah. When I talked to them about the local dairy farms that are five minutes down the road, they would stand for half an hour and talk to me about the dairy crisis. Mm. And I was like, okay, this resonates with people. People do care. And so those two things kind of coming together made us realize People just don't understand how bad the situation is for dairy farmers. And if we have a voice and a platform that we can speak about that, then it's our responsibility to do so. Because I can't save every dairy farmer. I can't. I can maybe save two more this year, four more this year, if things go really well. But there's hundreds who need help. And so if we just bring attention to it, and by bringing attention to it, that has a trickle-down effect of the ones we can't save bonus why do it why make it part of your mission to now save these dairy farms to kind of you know it's a higher cost for you sure it really you know as a business it really is so why why is it something that you guys really want to do because it's the number one ingredient that goes into my product if i'm going to go out there and get all of this wonderful success and all of these great accolades I'm not dairy farming 365 days a year. Mm -hmm. When it's 20 below out, I'm not out there with the cows at 4 a.m. When it's 100 degrees and at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you're trying to, you know, keep these girls healthy enough because it's so hot and you're, you know, milking in the heat of all of that. I'm not doing that, but I am benefiting from all of that hard work. And so from my perspective, it's my duty, it's my responsibility. If I'm gonna have a successful business where if there's no milk, there's no Caputo Brothers Creamery, period. It's my job. It's part of what I am called to do as a person who is running this business and you know, dairy farmers are working 365 days a year, twice a day milking. It's not like they have time to be like, eh, you know, I'm going to take today off and go do some Facebook Live and really advocate for the dairy industry. But I do have the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. And so, again, it goes back to this, these are my people. These are the people that, that depend on me. And so I need to make sure I sell cheese at a price that can support a fair price for them. And then it's good for everybody. And, you know, it's good for my customers because they're getting a, a better product, uh, a product that tastes better, a product that's better for them. 
Um, and it's good for my vendors, my, my dairy farmers, because now they can sustain themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, they can have insurance again. They can have a tractor that runs. They can have a barn that isn't falling down. They can take care of these beloved animals that are, they probably spend more time with than their own children. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really, I see myself as the link between the rural and urban, you know, um, populations and so it's my responsibility to serve them both well yeah and you're kind of you know you, you came here because of the quality of that product mm -hmm. and you've really taken it beyond the borders that it ever reached before right and it's you know I have always been somebody who I can't stand injustice right it's funny because Mateo is nine uh, our youngest and he's very much about well that wasn't fair and he can give you a million reasons why that wasn't fair and it shouldn't be like that and here's why and I was probably that kid yeah. I mean he probably gets that from me like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stand for this my whole life I've been that way like that's not fair and he, let me tell you why and so when we started figuring out for instance that you know, 4 billion pounds of mozzarella is consumed in the United States every year, almost none of which is real cheese. It's just milk with vinegar, citric acid added to look like a cheese called mozzarella. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't cook like mozzarella. It doesn't taste like mozzarella. It doesn't digest like mozzarella. It's actually none of the things that mozzarella is supposed to be. Well, that's an injustice. Like, that to me is, is a scam. It's... You know, people taking advantage of the American population who has no idea how cheese is made. And so if I had to get down to the heart of why I became a cheesemaker, that's probably why. I just couldn't believe that this injustice was there and I had to right the wrong. And that's probably a big part of the dairy farming thing, too. As I've become a part of this community and just seen... Look, it hasn't just been broken for the past seven years. We're talking about probably a hundred years of broken mm -hmm. that hasn't been fixed. Well, okay, that's not fair. It's it's an injustice that must be, it's a wrong that must be righted. And so, you know, I have a vehicle to do that. And what's cool is my vehicle's like a bus. It's big. And so I'm driving the bus and I'm just like going and picking people up and say, get on in. Okay, because between... The fact that we have this product that has a big market and we're the only ones who do it this way and now we've got all this good quality milk and we have the ability to sell it at a price that gives a fair wage, great. We got we got it all going for us and we can right the wrong. Hmm. We can right the wrong. What are the next big milestones for you guys? We have a new cheese coming out uh, August 4th, I think is the official launch date. It is called Troganator Beer Cheese. I've heard of this one. Yeah, it took us a long time to come up with that name. <laughs> uh, but uh, it might surprise you to know that it is a cheese made with Troganator beer, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is a, a great beer out of Trogues Brewery. And we had we were approached by the folks at Giant when they saw success um, and that we were able to save this farm. The executive team came back to us and said, how do we do more? How do we save more farms? And we said, well, you know, by, by, you know, selling more cheese. And they said, well, we have this idea of doing a beer cheese with Trogues. It's, you know, our top, top craft brew that we sell. 
do you think you'd be interested in doing that? And I said, you know, not really. It's not our thing. Okay. I was saying no. Yeah. Right? Look at me. <laughs> and and I said, it's just not, um, it, it's, it's, you know, we're Italian cheesemakers. You know, this was going to be like a, a cheddar or a Gouda style. Okay. And I said, you know, it's just not really what we do. We don't have the equipment for that. But they, they kept saying, are you sure? Because this is like the volume it would look like. And we would put it in all 180 stores and maybe even other parts of our sister companies. And and so when we started doing some of those calculations just for fun and we saw what the volume could be if we did this cheese the right way and it was successful. And we said, that's like two dairy farms we could save. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it had, but it had to be more than that. It had to be that the cheese team was also really interested in doing it, okay. which they were. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, okay. And kind of as these pieces came together, we said, well, we're not equipped to do this. And at that point, Governor Wolf had just announced this Pennsylvania Dairy Investment Program. Yeah. And we said, okay, well, here's a potential grant that we could, if we got, we could actually take and immediately put that equipment in place and then we could make this cheese and then we could save two dairy farms and maybe this works. And it worked. You know, we got the grant. um, We got the the Trogner brothers who are in Trogs Brewery on board. We designed this great cheese and, you know, we deliver the first 550 wheels on July 26th. And... It's just what's really cool about it, I think, is that Giant is headquartered in Carlisle. Trogues is in Hershey. We're down in Spring Grove. And if you connect the dots, our dairy farms are all in the middle of that triangle. That's cool. And if I like to think about we're building a fortress around Mm -hmm. the dairy farms. And we're like, these are ours. Mm -hmm. These are our people. And we got your back. Like, we got you. And, you know... We want to talk about building a wall. That's a cool one, right? And and I think, you know, um, for us, we hope that that's a cheese. It's good. Everybody who tastes it's, like, thrilled. And, uh, and I think that that's something that will be um, a good success story for us and for Trogues. And I think that the dairy farmers are going to gonna see some good success uh, because of it as well so so that's the next big thing that we have going um so we've got major expansion going on at the plant right now um we already have the vat in the rest of the equipment gets here tomorrow the aging cave construction starts in the next week or two um so a lot of expansion going on in addition to that our hope is to put in a mozzarella stretching machine so that we can actually make some mozzarella that we could package and sell in some of the smaller giant stores where they can't um, stretch mozzarella every day. Okay. Um, but also some pizzerias maybe that don't have the staffing to be able to make their own mozzarella can buy the mm. cheese already made. So, uh, yeah, we think if everything goes the right way and we get all of the equipment in and the expansion done within the next month or two, um, you know, we could be looking at... at at tripling or quadrupling the amount of cheese that we produce uh, just in the next year. Wow. Yeah. Do you think that you and Dave have created the life that you set out to? 
Wow, that's a big question. No, uh, I think that we had no idea what we were creating. We just really believed in what we were doing. And we got so far in that the only way to survive really was forward. There was no turning back. And I would tell you that there have been many, many, many conversations of, okay, the option is put the key in the door, is the saying we always use, and just walk away and say, we just physically can't do it anymore or financially can't do it anymore. Or we have to figure out how to make it work. Mm -hmm. And we've always figured out a way to make it work. We just believe in what we're doing. People tell me all the time, you could sell anything to anybody. You could sell, you know, ice cubes in Alaska. And I say, no, but I could sell mozzarella in Alaska because I really believe in what we're doing. And now that I know that the dairy farming industry is depending on us, mm-hmm. like that gives it that much more importance. We had a really cool moment in Italy. We, we run tours to Italy. So kind of an interesting thing happened with the business. We were capitalized to sell 40 pounds of mozzarella at the local farmer's market. We had sunk every dime we had into building this little creamery in our home that we thought we might add another vat to in five years. We outgrew the entire facility in nine months. We didn't have any money to grow at the pace we were growing. And so we started finding ways to bring more money into the business. So Someone just offhandedly said, would you do a dinner for us? And we said, Mm -hmm. sure. And so we did a dinner and we passed a basket around and people put money in and that grew into a restaurant. Those same people said, would you take us to Italy? And we were going back and forth to Italy, working with cheesemakers to get more knowledge. And it was, we couldn't afford to do it anymore. And so they, they said, well, let's put a trip together. And we put a trip together and we would make cheese on the front end and the back end so that we could cover the cost of going to Italy. And that's how the touring company was started. And so, you know, all all along the way, we just did what we had to do in order to support this crazy growth that was going on with the cheese business. And, you know, I think what's interesting about that is that we didn't know that we were going to be starting three businesses at one time, um, but they've all kind of brought a little something different to the party. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we've been able to sustain this kind of crazy growth that's gone on with the cheese business. Um, yeah, it's been it's been a wild ride. It's definitely been a wild ride. A, go, go, a really good one, a really good one. And I, I just hope that it just keeps... I just hope that it, it keeps moving so that we can save more farms. Yeah, that's basically, that's the goal. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for coming here and talking to us today. I just, I think it's phenomenal to hear your backstory and also how it's evolved and that you're still going and and growing and doing really cool things. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And yeah, we we hope to keep bringing more exciting stuff to York. We've got a... Uh, the restaurant, our hope is to evolve into a little bit of a, a creamery experience. Yeah. 
kind of like you would get at Hershey Milk Chocolate World. And oh, cool. So we, we love anybody, again, who's bringing attention to what's going on in York. We think it's pretty special. So we really appreciate the support. You guys are always giving it. So thank you. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. For more information on Our York Media and our Good News Initiative, you can visit ouryorkmedia.com. We appreciate your attention and give bonus points for those who subscribe. The Our York Media podcast is produced by Will Hanlon and Caleb Robertson. I'm Rebecca Hanlon. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>